My hunch is you've been on the giving and receiving end of the multiple questions scenario. <laughs> and that, that this happens everywhere. It happens in meetings, uh, podcast interviews, and very problematically in coaching. So actually, I think it's problematic across the categories. And it's come up recently for me in a few different contexts, and I thought it'd be something interesting to talk about today. So the golden rule of asking powerful questions is that there's only one, or I should say one question at a time. This came out loud and clear in my coaching training, both in the classroom, supervision, then just other places. It's just come up over and over again. In fact, I was struck by how important this was that I have a yellow post-it that's on the wall in front of where I sit, do a lot of my work and often coach. And it says, ask one question, stop. And the stop is all in capital letters. And the idea here is that usually we get our most, usually you'll get the most profound or deep or potential for deepening responses when you start with one question. The temptation, of course, is that often as we are asking that first question, a better one pops in our mind. So maybe midway through that question, or even after the question is, has landed, before the person can answer, we jump right back in and ask a slightly different question. And then if it's really not so going so well, we'll even maybe ask a third question sprinkled in with some judgments or opinions, which clouds things even further. The downside of this, of course, is that the answer or the response that you get often tries to address all of the questions, or maybe only one of the questions gets answered, or maybe the response you get is just watered down because it's just... In other words, just as the questions themselves were confusing so the response you receive might not be as clear as it could have been otherwise. I think the hardest part of taking this approach is the waiting. It's this, well, it's two things. One, it's stopping yourself and forcing yourself to complete a not so great question when you've thought of a quote, much better question. The surprising thing here too is I cannot count the number of times where as I'm asking the first question, I think of a better question, but I continue on with that first question and wait, and I still get a good response or a clear response to the question that I've answered. And it doesn't require the follow-up brilliant question that I had. On the other hand, if the response I get to the first question proves that my first question wasn't very good, I've got that alternate that I thought up in my back pocket that I can then throw out there to get the clarity that I'm looking for or to drive the conversation deeper. The other challenge, uh, in addition to asking the one question and keeping my mouth shut, is keeping your mouth shut. (laughs) Sometimes, uh, well, oftentimes, the real power and depth comes from the awkwardness, the uncomfortable silence, the... So when will this project be done? Full stop. Not, when will this project be done? 
I know it's really, I know we're really busy right now and I know we have a lot of things going on and I know that I know blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, you've asked, when will the project be done? You've told them that you know that it won't be done. And then you've kind of just like given them four different options to choose from in terms of what the answer could be when really you would have got a more, <laughs> you would have learned a lot more by just saying, so when will this project be done? I've also been noticing this same thing in podcast interviews and be on the lookout for this where, you you know, compare the great interviews where maybe you learn something, you really resonate with the guest or the interviewer. Notice the number of times that their questions are a sentence or two and how neutral those questions can be. In other words, the question is not loaded with assumptions or judgments. I find too that the multiple question askers, they're harder to listen to because it, it gets confusing as they as they kind of pile the questions on. And I think it also intentionally, well, I'm sure it's not intentional, but inadvertently, I think it also shows a degree of insecurity or lacking confidence in the question that's asked, which I suppose is another compelling reason to ask that one question and stop. Even if that one question isn't great, asking two or three of like pylon questions undermines that initial question and does, I think, leave an overall sense of being unsure or, you know, a sense of trying too hard. The other thing I think you'll see too in in the scenarios where there's judgments or assumptions baked into the questions is there's more dissonance in the answer. Getting a real clear response is it's often harder. So here here are a couple examples that I made up to try and illustrate this point. So the first one is, what was the pivotal moment in your career? That's it. Just wait for the answer. See what comes. And then go deeper with whatever the response is. As opposed to... What was the pivotal moment in your career? I mean, you must have had lots of them considering all the different jobs you've had and how long you've been in the workplace. I can't imagine what it's like to have been in the workplace for 30 years. So what was the experience like and what did you take from it? And wow, you know, were there multiple pivotal moments? Typically a response that you get to a series like that is someone trying to synthesize all of the different answers into a single answer, or they will, you know, comment, wow, that was several questions there. And they will seek to answer the questions in a particular order. The interviewer will have to repeat the question. It just gets all convoluted and confusing in a way that it would be so much more powerful to just ask that one question and just get out of the way. Another example I've seen of this is at project meetings. So, uh, (laughs) I'm sure we've all, if you're a project manager or work on the software team, you've experienced this one. So here's it. Here it goes. Yesterday was our software freeze date. Our dashboard shows we still have a week of work left to do. What is each team's confidence level in our current launch date? Versus. Yesterday was our software freeze date. Our dashboard shows we still have a week of work left to do. What is each team's confidence in our current launch date? 
I know people have been working hard and I know Felix worked all weekend and must be exhausted. And I, oh, I also know that the other half of the team has been at a conference all week. Does anyone know when those people will be back? Are there other open issues too that we need to know and, and how that will affect our release date? So the example here, hopefully it's, you know, the original question of what is our confidence level in the launch date? It's completely been lost. The punch and the power of that one question, it's gone. And that question could have been answered, you know, in a one, one word from each team. What is the team's confidence in our current, what is each team's confidence in our current launch date? You know, and the single word answer could have been high, medium, or low. You just go around the circle. Marketing, high, medium, low. Product management, high, medium, low. Development, high, medium, low. Quality, high, medium, low. And boom, 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 boom. You get an answer without all the, you know, editorials and people must be tired. And, you know, it's good. (laughs) I'm not saying don't be empathetic and sensitive to the situation, but... If your real intent is to figure out whether the project is on schedule or not, getting lost in all these other details doesn't do really anything to help you. And, you know, behind all of this is knowing why you are doing what you're doing. In a coaching context, you're wanting to go deeper with the coachee to get to the bottom of what they want to know or what's holding them back or how they're not accomplishing what they want to accomplish. And in peeling back the layers in this way, you often get there a lot quicker. Now, if your goal is to interrogate someone or throw them off balance or, you know, flooding them with questions (laughs) and, you know, trying to throw them off balance in this way, yeah, that, that could be, I suppose, an effective technique. But this ties into... Another question I got recently, the, the link is a little, some might say a little weak, but I see the tie-in. And the tie-in I see here is the difference between creating something new or continuing to refine that thing that you already had. Here's the parallel. And here, actually, here's the, here's the question that was emailed to me. What is the convention on editing blog posts after they are up? For example, you post something, then think of a better way to say it. Can I go in and make edits? Do I need to flag the change in a footer? Can a blog post be something I am perfecting over time, or is that bad form? I think this ties in directly to the notion of the question asking. So if you ask the question, and then you go back and you rephrase it, and you pile on some more, and you just keep changing it before the other person has responded... I see that as kind of this polishing approach versus you put something out there, get a response, then you come up with a new question and you go from there. I think the same thing could apply to this blog post question. These are my opinions. They're not backed by science or industry practice. This is what makes sense to me. Uh, If it doesn't make sense to you, let me know. Maybe there's something I'm missing here. I think a lot of this comes back to what are you working on? In the, in the context of this blog post question, each medium is different. You wouldn't post something on Twitter and then if you thought of a more creative way, delete it and then repost it. I suppose you could, but that just seems weird to me and I think would seem weird to other people. Now, naturally, if if you posted something that was offensive or grossly under misunderstood or there's some reason to delete it, delete it. But I kind of think of blog posts in the same way. 
it's it's a moment in time. It's something you're thinking about. It's something you've crafted. You've published it. It's out there. It's done. It's not a book. You know, it's not a book that's going to be published where each chapter matters. I mean, maybe over time you're planning to turn it into a book. But I think that just like my example with the questions, if you come up with a new idea or a new angle on a blog post, write another blog post. I don't think there's any uh, harm in perfecting your thoughts and your messages over time. You could even start the post off by saying, you know, this post was informed by this other post. And here are some recent clearer ideas I now have on this topic. And if over time you come to find that that original post is just so misguided and so stale, delete it and then set up a redirect to your later article so that you don't lose any of the SEO juice and you don't have any broken links. And if someone happens to find that old post, well, they end up at your new one talking about the same topic, but in a better way. I think the other thing I would keep in mind here in terms of the blog is what's the purpose of the blog and maybe what's your bigger purpose? Are you trying to become a thought leader? Are you trying to you know, become a prolific blogger? Are you trying to create good content? If you're trying to get good at creating content, creating good content, in my experience, just comes from practice. So the more of it you create, the better versus taking something old and continuing to polish and shine. And it, it's kind of like sometimes, you know, you get that first crappy draft after your, out of your system and it's pretty good. And you look at it and you just throw the whole thing away and start again. Sometimes I think that second complete rewrite from scratch is way better than if you were to take that original one and repolish it. And in terms of answering this again, what is the overall, what's the end goal? What is the end product? Maybe if you were working on a manifesto, that's going to be much bigger, I think, than a blog post. Maybe it has, maybe that has its own landing page. Uh, maybe in something like that, I think you would publish into a different form, like maybe a PDF. Um, and you know, maybe there's a version two of the manifesto you write, but again, I would see that as a kind of a different form of output. Some exceptions here. Uh, well, not necessarily exceptions, but I will say that I do have blog posts that like focus on technical tutorials. Like here's how to set up uh, a router. Here's how to do this. Yes, as I've gotten, or here's a little script that does something. Yes, as I've gotten comments or feedback on what I've written, if I found that it's, well, definitely if it's like not correct or it doesn't work, <laughs> I've made adjustments. Uh, I had one article that I did about how to configure a, a DSL modem. And over time, I just stopped using that piece of hardware. So I just put in a little note at the end that just said, hey, I'm no longer using the setup. Don't know if this will work for you anymore or not. So I think that that kind of stuff, yeah, that makes sense. So something else to keep in mind there too. I think the other way to come at this notion too of do I update something that I've already published? If someone, I mean, I'm going to speak from my own experience here, and I think this experience of others, I read a lot of blog posts in an RSS reader. So Feedly is is my my tool of choice right now. And actually a, an app I discovered recently on a really great website called The Sweet Setup, which evaluates all Apple apps and uh, mobile 
products. There's a, a RSS app on there called Unread that has a really, really nice looking interface. And I paid the seven or eight dollars for the app. I'm really happy with it. It talks to Feedly and keeps track of everything. All that to come full circle and say, once I read a blog post that someone has published, it shows up in my feed reader, I read it, it's gone. If someone updates it, I'll never know about it. So at this point, I'm probably repeating myself. I would take a strong position that you're better off to just create something new, start all over again, create just instead of polishing the old thing, write a new thing. Write it better than you wrote the first one. And if your goal, again, is to become a better writer uh, and to practice that, what better way to do it than approaching it that way? Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. If you have questions or ideas around the podcast, send those to podcast at johnpolster.com. 